Turn to Psalm chapter 9. Yesterday, I got an email from a friend asking me to pray for him and for several other Christians because they're being persecuted. This man has enemies. He is in conflict with men because he's a Christian. Because he loves and trusts God. And so, he turns to God in prayer and asks his friends to turn to God in prayer too. What does he ask for? What does he want? He wants to be protected. He wants the persecution to stop. And he wants to respond with faith and thankfulness. Those are his prayer requests. That he'd be protected, that the persecution would stop, and that he would respond with faith and thankfulness. In summary, you could say that what he wants is he wants God to prevail, not man. He wants God to prevail. And that's what this psalm is about. David recognizes that God is the only one who accomplishes such amazing things as he has seen in the past and as he is asking for, right? Both past, present, and future, he recognizes God is the only one who can do these things. And so he turns to God and asks God to prevail. Now, what does it mean to prevail, kids? Anybody know? Yeah, take to win. That's right. If you prevail, you win. And so he's saying to God, God, would you please win? Now that's pretty sweet, isn't it? To think about God winning and then just to know that he has the power to win and then to think we can pray to him, that he can win. And if he wins... Who loses? Well, Satan loses, right? But so does man. Man loses when God wins. We're to be made into sons of God. Which isn't to say we we become something besides men, right? But we're taken out of the kingdom of man, and put into God's kingdom. It's it's a beautiful, beautiful thing when God prevails. And he prevails against rebellious men, men who are opposed to him, men who are setting up kingdoms and powers and, and doing everything that they can to fight against God and his church, against his people. And this is what, this is where persecution comes from, Right? So let's see how David responds to this persecution. Let's, let's pay attention to his prayer as he looks to God and asks God to prevail. Please stand for the reading of God's word. For the choir director on Muthlaban, a psalm of David. I will give thanks to the Lord with all my heart. I will tell of all your wonders. I will be glad and exult in you. I will sing praise to your name, O Most High. 
When my enemies turn back, they stumble and perish before you, for you have maintained my just cause. You have sat on the throne judging righteously. You have rebuked the nations. You have destroyed the wicked. You have blotted out their name forever and ever. The enemy has come to an end in perpetual ruins, and you have uprooted the cities. The very memory of them has perished. But the Lord abides forever. He has established his throne for judgment, and he will judge the world in righteousness. He will execute judgment for the peoples with equity. The Lord also will be a stronghold for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. And those who know your name will put their trust in you. For you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. Sing praises to the Lord, who dwells in Zion. Declare among the peoples his deeds. For he who requires blood remembers them. He does not forget the cry of the afflicted. Be gracious to me, O Lord. See my affliction from those who hate me. You who lift me up from the gates of death, that I may tell of all your praises, that in the gates of the daughter of Zion, I may rejoice in your salvation. The nations have sunk down in the pit which they have made, in the net which they hid, Their own foot has been caught. The Lord has made himself known. He has executed judgment. In the work of his own hands, the wicked is snared. Higayon Selah. The wicked will return to Sheol, even all the nations who forget God. For the needy will not always be forgotten, nor the hope of the afflicted perish forever. Arise, O Lord, do not let man prevail. Let the nations be judged before you. Put them in fear, O Lord. Let the nations know that they are but men. Selah. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks Thanks be to God. Please be seated. We must give all the glory to God. We must give all the glory to God. We see this at the beginning of this psalm. When David says, I will give thanks to the Lord with all my heart. If you give thanks to the Lord with all your heart, then you're giving him all the praise. You're giving him all the glory. There is a lot of temptation to rely on ourselves, or to take credit ourselves for things that have been accomplished, for things that have been accomplished through us. If you think about football, there's there's this classic move after you score a touchdown, right? And, And that's what? Relation to this, what is it? Anybody? No? It's this. Just a simple move. Lift your finger up and point up to heaven, right? Or are you pointing to the crowds? 
Who exactly, what exactly are, are, are these scorers of touchdowns pointing to? A awful lot of the time, yeah, it, it's actually, you know, you've heard the, the old saying, when you point one finger at me, there's three pointing back at yourself. Yeah, an awful lot of it is about me when that happens, right? And so there's this, there's this weird thing where we have, on the one hand, we want to give God glory, and on the other hand, we want, you know, some of it for ourselves. And there's this weird tension where it's like, well, I know God is the one who did it, but on the other hand, he did it through me. And so we feel this, we feel this strange, this strange uh, compulsion to give credit to God, and yet we also feel this, this, like, well, can't I at least admit that I was used? Or, you know, do I just have to, do I just have to be completely silent? Do I have to just pretend like I don't exist after something good happens that, that I do, you know? It, it's weird. But, but it's a, there's a simple solution, okay? And the simple solution is give thanks to God with all your heart. And if you give thanks to God with all your heart, then you won't be confused, actually. It's not, it's not hard once you're whole heart is giving thanks to God to give the credit all to him. The moment that we have this sort of this tension in ourselves, the tension comes from the fact that we don't want all of the credit to go to him. We want some of it to go to ourselves. So I have this happen when somebody thanks me for my sermon or says, what a good sermon that was, which happens, normally not that. Normally they just thank you. No, thank you. That's the, that's the equivalent of pointing up to heaven, right? Or something like that, right? There, there's, there's all of these things that we can do, that we can say that, that really don't give all the glory to God, but then we're like, well, how in the world am I supposed to give all the glory to God anyway? I don't really understand how that, how that works. My point is, even, even pointing to God, even words that point to God, they don't prove anything, do they? An awful lot of people who point up at God, point up to the heavens, when, when they get a touchdown or whatever it is, you know, an awful lot of them are simply looking to get additional praise for themselves. An awful lot of Christians who say, to God be the glory, when somebody compliments them, are still holding in themselves themselves 
some pride at what they have accomplished. The fact that they have good preaching skills, or the fact that they have good ball handling skills, or the fact that all of these, all of these things that God has given to them, they're so proud of that they have them. But they forget that God gave them in the first place. And so David doesn't really feel any tension. He just, he just gives praise to God with his whole heart. And mind you, this does not mean that David was passive, does it? If you think, well, you know, I guess if God is going to get all the credit, then God is going to have to do everything, and I'll just have to sit here so that I don't get any credit, then you're not thinking biblically. Now, I know that's not how you would normally put it, but the way we would put it that means exactly the same thing is, well, you know, I'm not sure what to do. I guess I'm just going to have to, just going to have to trust God and do nothing. David doesn't talk about what he's going to do, but he certainly doesn't do nothing, does he? You ever read David's life story? He's always doing something. When he's not doing something, there's a problem. Right? So if you want to give all the glory to God, it's easy. Give thanks to him with all your heart. And you won't be able to help but give all the glory to him. Because you'll be so thankful that he has given you a sword. You'll be so thankful that you have the ability to fight. You'll be so thankful that you've been given the gift of teaching or of preaching or of working hard. Whatever the gifts that God has given you, you'll be thankful that you have them. You'll be so thankful that it doesn't even occur to you to take credit for them yourself somehow or to be proud of them. They come from God. What a beautiful thing. It's something to be thankful for. And so then we give praise to him. Your response then, with, with if other people compliment you, if, if you have a heart that's just full of thanksgiving to God, when people compliment you, whether it's on your work or whether it's your artistic abilities or whatever it is, you know, when people begin to compliment you, your response will be from a heart of thanks instead of one of pride. And one great way to do this is to actually think about the amazing things that God has done for you and others. What is that? In verse 1, I will tell of all your wonders. What sort of wonders? Has, Has God done wonders in your life? What are wonders? A wonder is an amazing thing. I was thinking about this, and I was thinking about you kids and thinking, you know, are you guys old enough to have seen wonders? 
Are you old enough to think about what wonders God has done for you, for others? And the answer is yes, you're old enough. You're old enough to think about it. You're old enough to have experienced it. Some of you kids have been adopted. You've been given an amazing gift from God. It's a wonder. It's miraculous what God has accomplished. Being given a family that loves God and loves you. Others of you have seen brothers and sisters born into your family, and you've seen marvels, you've seen wonders of God, and you can praise Him. And if you think about the marvels that God has performed for others, because sometimes it is easier for us to look at other people's lives and see the wonders that God has done for them, especially if we're not very thankful. Right? Well, you know, God's given you so many good things, and so I can understand how you're happy and thankful, but what has God ever done for me? Well, let's look at the things that he has done for me. Because he's done amazing things for me. And there's two ways of responding to that. You can see the works, the wonders that God has done for others, and you can begin to realize God has done wonderful things. And you can begin to be thankful to him, or you can become bitter and say that he hasn't done enough wonderful things for you. What a sad way to live, though. Bitterness just destroys lives. I told you I'd get back to the uh, to the stones, right? And and what did this? What were what did the stones on the shoulders of the priest? What did it say about them? They were for what? Memorials. Does it say memorials in the New King James Version? Curious. Thirty nine. Verse 7, 6 or 7. We'll get that answer in a second. But memorials. What's a memorial? Same, same word, yeah. What is a memorial? A memorial is something that you raise up. Have you guys ever been to the... It, oh, let's see... Uh, is there a memorial in, in Cincinnati somewhere? I can't think of one. Thinking of Indianapolis, there's a memorial in the center of the circle in, in Indianapolis. It's the Sailors and Soldiers Monument. It's a, it's a memorial, right? And you raise it up that everybody will see it so that they'll all remember, right? And what are you trying to remember? the good things that God has done. What are the Israelites trying to remember? Why does God put memorial stones right here on the shoulder that everybody can see them? 
Those are memorials of the work, the wonders that God has done. And so everybody is supposed to look at them and remember. If you haven't, I encourage all of you to listen to season one of Monumental. And then the name Monumental is meant to communicate this very thing. Here are monuments, memorials of things that God has done. And it's just, each episode is just an interview dwelling on a marvel that God has performed, dwelling on the works of God in one person's life. And they're so strengthening. It's funny, it's, uh, it's women. It's a show for women. I can't, I can't get enough of it. And the reason is because listening to it causes me to give thanks to God, to praise him, because they're just memorials. How wonderful what God has done. So don't look at your friends and be jealous for what they've been given. Don't look at your friends and be bitter that you don't have what they have. Don't look at your brothers and your sisters and be like, how come he gets to go to the party? Right? Look at the amazing things that God has done for you, for him, and be thankful. This is what David starts with, and it's the basis for all the rest of this, recognizing what God has done. And then what does he do? Well, then he begins to go into the fight, right? Because there's this, there's this fight. The prayer that he is lifting up is one that God would prevail, and God If God is going to prevail, it means he's going to win. And if he's going to win, it means that there is a fight. And so David begins to go into the fight and talk about what God has done in the past. God has rescued, of course. But how? I mean, the the point is David is saying, you know, he has been a rescuer. God has... God has come and saved his people. When my enemies turn back, they stumble and perish before you. He could say before me, but really they're perishing before God, right? You can say both. They're both true. God has rescued by the hand of David, often. So how does God rescue? Well, it starts with him judging. It has to start with judging, doesn't it? How is he going to decide who to rescue and who to punish if it doesn't start with judgment? 
He judges between the people. And so this theme of judgment is throughout the rest of the psalm. Verse 4, you've maintained my just cause. You sat on the throne judging righteously. He rescues the righteous, but the wicked he destroys. Those are the two things that he does after he judges. So it starts with him judging, then he rescues the righteous by destroying the wicked, right? This is so central to what man is called to do. This is not just God that does this. This is what we are called to do. Judge, then act. Act on the basis of righteous judgment. Adam was to work the ground and produce fruit from it. Right? You go to work, you're supposed to work hard and earn money, provide for yourself and your family. But even thinking about Adam, if he's going to accomplish his work, he's going to have to judge between the good plants and the bad plants, right? And the good plants, he has to nourish. And the bad plants, the thorns and the thistles, he has to destroy, right? And by the way, that hurts. Hurts you doing that. Thorns and thistles make your job hard. I've been reading people talk a lot recently about what it means to be a man. And the context of this has been this guy, Jordan Peterson, if you're you're familiar with him. But, but somehow, some people got off talking about shame and how bad a thing shame is. But here's the thing. Shame is not bad. Bad shame is bad. Good shame is good. God's enemies are ashamed here. And that's a good thing for God's enemies to be ashamed. Their name is completely destroyed. There is nothing more shameful than that. It's utter shame. It's the end of shame. But those who are rescued are not ashamed for putting their faith in God who rescues. And so there's So this concept of shame is really hard for us as a nation to process right now because we see some really, really bad effects of shame. And there are. There are a lot of really bad effects that come from shame. And so we just say, oh, well, shame must be the root of all sorts of evil. But actually... Bad shame is really bad. Good shame is 
really good. So what's an example of bad shame? Well, anytime that we're ashamed, there's some sort of judgment that's been made about whether we are, the well, if we feel shame, then we've made a judgment that we are not the way we ought to be. So when we sin, if we have a conscience, we feel shame for that sin. We feel shame for not being how we're supposed to be. It's not the same thing as guilt, right? It's about who we are, what we're being. The problem only comes in when you judge yourself on some other measure besides God's measure for what you're supposed to be. So if you use any worldly measure for what you're supposed to be and you feel shame, that shame will be disastrous. That shame will be causing you to be all kinds of crazy things that you're not supposed to be because you weren't using God's measure for what you're supposed to be, right? You see how this all starts with judgment, properly deciding between right and wrong, between true and false, between... and, and it, So judgment starts with God. And then when we get to the New Testament, it says, let judgment begin in the household of God, Right? And then, false shame, bad shame is gone, but not shame. Shame is not gone. There's still plenty of shame. So Adam. Adam is given the work of cultivating the ground. And what a shameful thing to go through and destroy to pluck the heads off of all the grain, and to fertilize the thorns and the thistles. Not just counterproductive, but shameful to do that, right? There's something just wrong with you doing that. But what's happened today is that our culture is seeking to shame men for being manly. Our culture shames men for being men. Well, what this is to say is that God has made a distinction between man and woman, and that we are to be man or woman as God made us to be, right? And if we can't judge properly between what a man and what a woman is there's going to be an awful lot of shame that's not based on God's measure. It'll be bad shame. And so anyone who's willing to say today that manly isn't bad is a hero. If you can just say being manly is actually good for men and not for women, you're a hero. There's all sorts of men who are like, save me from my shame because 
I'm a man. But they're being, they have all this false shame. So if you simply say, no, it's actually good for you to be a man, then you've removed these vast, raging torrents of bad shame off of them, right? And so Peterson's a hero. Not a Christian, but a hero. Because he's willing to say, no, actually, men, men are different than women. They, there's just something good to that, actually, I think. I don't know if he, if he, if he uh, credits evolution for that. I've read some great, some great uh, fascinating pieces that in the end say, like, and this is the way it's meant to be because we evolved over millions of years to be this way. Uh, no, it's because God said man and woman. You see? It's really, it's really simple, but it requires us to be able to judge and to judge rightly and then to understand what we're supposed to do with it. Because man is supposed to imitate God in this that What does he do? He judges and then he rescues the righteous and he destroys the wicked. And that makes everybody very uncomfortable today because men aren't allowed to be manly. And so the moment that you start acting manly and seeking to destroy the wicked, everybody has a hissy fit. And hissy fits are not manly. Here's the flip side. It's shameful for a man to be soft, which is to refuse to judge, to refuse to rescue, or to refuse to destroy. Do you see that? Here God is, and he is judging between the righteous and the wicked, and then he is rescuing the righteous, and then he is destroying the wicked. And it's what every good father is to do, isn't it? To judge. To judge between your sons who are fighting. To judge between right and wrong to judge what to do next. It's such a beautiful thing to follow after God in this. Just like David. And it's so shameful when we refuse to. And that shame is good shame. The Lord is a stronghold for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. Those who know your name will put their trust in you, for you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. God has not forsaken. Now here at this point, I think some of you may say, I feel forsaken, 
Even if you're not willing to say, yes, I am forsaken, you may say, but I feel forsaken, right? If God cares, why does he wait to answer my prayers? Why does he wait to answer so-and-so's prayers? I think so-and-so, if I were so-and-so, I would feel ashamed at having put my faith in God. In fact, why does God allow us to suffer at all if he cares so much? Our memory verse, you guys get those fighter verses, right? You work on those? Fighter verse this week. Any of you kids know it? From Philippians. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. That phrase, the fellowship of his sufferings. That is a strange phrase, isn't it? Fellowship of his sufferings. Fellowship is what? Any of you kids want to answer? If you're in fellowship with somebody, you'd look like, Liam and Judah there. They're sitting on the same chair, their arms around each other. You see that? They're not punching or pinching or any of the other things that brothers often do. They're just sitting there in fellowship with one another. Behold how good and how blessed it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. That's fellowship. And so then you've got the fellowship of Christ's suffering being referred to here. And so they're in fellowship on the chair, and we have fellowship with Christ in his sufferings. And it's not a thing that we think about wanting to be in fellowship with, is it? Fellowshipping with Christ in his suffering. being conformed to his death. It goes beyond fellowshipping with his suffering. You're actually, through fellowshipping in his suffering, conformed to his death. In order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Sometimes God's people are even persecuted to death, aren't they? Have they been ashamed for putting their faith in God? Was it pointless? Can you put your faith in God, seeing that other people who have gone before you, who have believed in God, who have trusted in him, have then suffered for their faith and even been put to death for their faith? Is it hopeless? Does that mean that there's really no point in you putting your faith in him? You see how tempting that is, don't you? Why should I bother if what the outcome is in the end might just be death, just like everybody dies? It's not true. And the reason it's not true is because, remember what I, did you catch that little phrase, in the end? 
if what it comes to in the end is that you're dead, just like everybody else, but that's not the end, is it? It's not the end. It wasn't the end when Christ died on the cross, was it? He came up out of the grave. What a beautiful thing. And not only that, but God will not allow his people to be shamed goes beyond the fact that they will be raised up. You remember what it says in Revelation? The saints who had died in Christ, they're waiting. What are they waiting for? They're waiting for God to vindicate them. God has not forgotten It was not hopeless. They are not ashamed. They are waiting. And God will pour out his judgment. He will rescue them. He will destroy their enemies. And sometimes that doesn't happen right now, right here. But God never forgets. It's never too late for God to show that he cares for his people. Even after they've died in him, he still makes their enemies pay. There's an awful lot of this psalm left, and I don't have an awful lot of time left. But I want to bring I want to I want to point out something really important here. A couple of things. We'll go through them quickly. Verse 14. That I may tell of all your praises, that in the gates of the daughter of Zion I may rejoice in your salvation. The work of God is accomplished for his people and in his church. For his people and in his church. David had conflict all over the place. If you look at the places where David fought, you can see it every direction. Conflict, conflict, conflict all over the place. He fought everywhere. But when he praised God, he desired to do it in the gates of the daughter of Zion. What are the gates of the daughter of Zion? It's the place, the gates of the city where God dwells. You see that? He wants, to, he wants to go back to Jerusalem and praise God in the gates of the city. What are the gates? It's the public place. It's the place where all of the people are. God has promised to dwell in us. And he, almost, he also promised to be with David. He is with us wherever we go. When David went out of the gates of Zion and fought out against the Philistines somewhere else, it wasn't like God wasn't with him, right? 
And so it is with us. When we go out from church, it's not like God isn't with us anymore. God is with us. But much more than that, God has promised to be wherever two or three are gathered together in his name. Clearly, he means something special about that, doesn't he? But much more than that, he has promised to be with his bride, the church. Your work, your family, your school, all of these are secondary compared to your church. There's a, there's a movement to create family-centered churches. And you could look at our church and be like, well, this church is very family-centered. But actually, that's not my desire for this body, for this church. My desire is that this would be a church of church-centered families. That's what you see with David. He wants to be back among the people of God, giving his praises there. Why did David go out and fight elsewhere? It was for Zion's daughter. It's Zion's daughter that man is seeking to overthrow. You see, if they can come in and they can take Jerusalem, if they can destroy the church, they will have accomplished all that their heart desires. They will have won against God. All of your work is to be seeking to build up and establish Zion's daughter, like David did. And you can do that all over the place, wherever you are, right? But you're building up Christ's church. Man often thinks that he will prevail. But the gates of hell will not prevail against God's church. Often, when you see men who think that they can prevail against God, they also think that they can prevail against other things that God has said that man can't prevail against, like death. Whenever you see people who think that who are so proud that they think that they have power over life and death, God will humble them. They will die, and they will be judged. I always take great delight in seeing people realize that their plans for becoming God are still infinitely far away. Plans for becoming God, I mean... 
sounds silly, but I mean, if you if you think about what's going on in people's worldviews, if you if you look at what their what their beliefs are and so forth, their hope is in the fact that they're going to become God. This is the Tower of Babel, right? We will reach up into the heavens. And what a what a beautiful thing it is to see God just be like, nah, I'm gonna, I'm gonna mess up your language. They realize how little they are. And you see this sort of thing. People who put their hope, I love particularly reading people who put their hope in science or people who put their hope in technology and just reading and and watching and listening to them, these, these utopias that they think that they can create if they can just get enough science done or if they think they can just get enough technology built. There's just so much amazing. They're, they're going to become God. They'll have power over life and death. And then you, inevitably you see the tower begins to tilt at some point. And it just all comes crashing down. And I just laugh. I laugh because I love seeing God win. I love seeing him prevail, even when it's over such idiotic things. <laughs> Do you want God to prevail over man? Then what you want is you want man to be judged. That's what you want. And you want God to judge between the righteous and the sinful, and you want him to rescue the righteous, and you want him to destroy the wicked. That's what it looks like for God to prevail. And this is the work that we have before us. Doing the work of judging, rescuing, destroying. And as we do that as Christ's church, then men will be taught to fear God because they will see that God is going to prevail. And yes, when you stand for Zion's daughter, when you defend God's church, you yourself will become a target. That happens. And you yourself will be persecuted. And you yourself will have to rely on God, but you will have fellowship with Christ's suffering. And that gives us hope. Hope for salvation is what it says. And yes, you will have to rely on God, like David does, Right? Not be proud and think that you can do it yourself. And no, you won't be able to be passive. Job wasn't passive when he was breaking the jaws of the wicked, was he? And David wasn't passive when he was fighting God's enemies. But you won't be ashamed. You won't be ashamed. If you put your hope in God, he will put the nations in fear. He will judge the nations, and he will prevail over man. Let's pray.